1: This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. This is White Coat Black Art. You're just doing a
0: sound check, are you? I'm doing yeah. a sound check, yes. Yeah, okay. Go ahead. Well, we're at Royal Hospital, 800 bed hospitals, serving a population of about half a million. And uh, on a given day, we get between 450 and 500 people coming through our emergency department, which was built for about half that number.
1: My hospital, we're at about 200.
0: The numbers have just gone up exponentially and the space is not designed for those numbers really. And in in general, in the UK, we've not spent enough capital expenditure on buildings, you know. So um, there's lots of added on prefab
1: units. Prefab units means portable makeshift hospital wards. Just like what we do in Canada for schools that have too many students and not enough classrooms. But this isn't Canada. It's the Royal Berkshire Hospital in Reading, 70 kilometres due west of London in the UK. I've come here because publicly funded health care here is in crisis, just like Canada, except worse. I'm really interested in the lessons they have for us.
0: So my name is David Oliver. I'm a consultant physician in uh, geriatrics and general internal medicine. I've been working here for about 20 years, been an NHS doctor for 35 years, and I've played lots of other roles in... British medicine outside the day job but but my main job is either being on call for the acute medical take or looking after big wards full of sick older people
1: you're also a keen observer of the healthcare system
0: uh, yeah I'm a columnist and policy analyst to do a lot of work commenting on the, the state of the nation
1: which is why I have come to see you um, thank
0: you we're just going to take you down to the acute medical unit and over meeting in a minute
1: it'll give you a chance to see but it it
0: just because well technically i'm not at work today you see i've come in to see you because i'm off i'm off this week so that's very kind of you um the other thing that's happened is my own home ward which has been a hot covid ward on and off for three years is full of covid people again
1: En route to the acute medical handover meeting dr david oliver gives a quick history lesson on the hospital when was this hospital built
0: 1850 i think the old bit at the front of the hospital, but there were two hospitals in Reading, and then with the old one closed in 2004. So some of the builds here are 20 years old, but some of the builds are considerably older, and you can see the the fabric needs an upgrade. Um, like many hospitals in Canada. I mean, there, there are some brand-new build hospitals around, like there's one in Bristol that's like a international airport, or the uh, Birmingham a brand new build or the Royal London. But in general, one of our things on international comparisons is we haven't spent enough on capital. In
1: 1948, the Labour government created the National Health Service, or NHS. healthcare care paid for by general taxation. The UK has always had a much smaller privately funded system that expands and contracts with the state of the economy. Right now, the economy is in shambles. COVID and a growing number of seniors mean the Royal Berkshire is groaning with patients.
0: So what we've had to do is we've had to bolt on more and more capacity to this unit as the numbers got bigger. So this whole ward area here is 36 rooms for acute medical admissions. And we also have, I'll show you the HMU. During peak COVID though, we had to split into hot and cold areas, which made the bed management even more challenging. Um,
1: and the hospital could use a facelift.
0: Now this used to be a store cupboard.
3: This used so to be a store cupboard.
0: The, and so um, we, uh, the, the standing joke is this prefab unit is called Narnia because you have to go through the wardrobe to get to it, so. Narnia,
1: <laughs> yeah. got it, okay. You, ha- you have to have a sense of humor.
3: Morning, good morning.
0: So, it, so this
1: is a newer build
0: and we use it for same day emergency care, you know, rapid ambulatory care. The idea is people don't stay in here overnight. We assess them quickly. We've got doctors dedicated to doing it and some nurse practitioners. How do you identify them? Either they're referred by their own GPs or we kind of screen who's coming through the emergency department if people are referring people to us. Let's get, get the person out of the emergency department and get them over here. All these computers on wheels, do you call them cows in Canada?
1: No, cows. I love cows. Those. We arrive at a meeting room where health professionals of various kinds are focused on moving admitted patients through the system.
0: One of the bestest things working down here is we've got Therapy's Corner here.
1: Therapies we've got Corner.
0: physiotherapists and occupational therapists who help us get lots and lots of people back home again. Although, at the moment, it's all OTs, isn't it? The videos are here.
3: They've maybe
0: stepped out for a moment. Yeah, so, so any given day, you know, 20-plus people, we can work with the OTs yeah. to get them out. But sometimes they'll come back to me and say this person can barely walk they're gonna to have to stay in and we've got access to a whole range of community step-down health services we've got community hospitals community rehab team bit of hospital at home care home support teams early supported discharge so we do try and funnel people into those services wherever possible okay and what do we call this room what do we call this room it's just a doctor's room isn't it, well, it isn't yeah though, it's it is isn't it yeah you see Yes, yeah, so we've got we've got nurse practic nurse practitioners working down here as well, doing ambulatory care, and if we go over to the emergency department, then you've got frailty practitioners, and some of them are nurses, some of them are therapists by background, and they're trying to help find people upstream so they don't even make it over here. Okay,
1: but it seems like it's a very important place, it's like a beehive yeah. of activity. It,
0: it, it is, yeah, especially the 11, the 11:30 handover meeting when everybody's being seen. But, but pretty much every day we're starting with negative, negative bed equity. <laughs> so we're starting the day minus 52 beds. Minus 52 yeah. beds.
1: Where are those 52 people in the accident and uh, emergency?
0: Or? Some of them will be over there, yeah. Yeah.
1: By negative bed equity, Oliver means there are 52 more admitted patients than there are hospital beds. There's
0: a constant imperative to find people to
1: go home. Some of those patients are on stretchers in the ER. Our next stop.
3: Hi, emergency morning,
1: emergency. I'm,
0: emergency. Hi, Good
3: morning. I'm Liza, I'm one of the consultants here, welcome.
1: I'm Brian, hi.
2: Andrea Hinterholzer is the boss today and she knows all about you. Are you Brian? I am Brian. Hello. Have you
1: got a few minutes to spare?
2: A few minutes, yes, yes. Please yes. have a seat. Thank you. Yeah.
1: In the UK, they call the ER the Accident and Emergency, or A&E.
2: So hello, my name is Andrea Hinterholzer. I'm one of the consultants of the emergency department here in the Rolbachs in Reading. I've been here for 10 years, uh, finished my training here, and, um, and then I continued as consultant.
1: Dr. Hinterholzer, welcome to White Coat Black Art.
2: Thank you very much.
1: What do you see here? What's going on today so far?
2: So far, it's a Monday morning. Um, Monday, we often um, see a lot of um, admitted patients um, in our department because the hospital is at capacity due to the weekend admissions. Uh, But at the moment, we are in good shape. But that's going to change? It's going to change, yes. Uh, If you interview me later on this afternoon, I'm going to going to tell you probably that we have no space for further patients and it will be a juggling act to get the um, appropriate patient to the appropriate location within the department. I think the maximum we've seen so far was 556 patients in 24 hours.
1: 556 patients wow that's a lot that must be very taxing on, on on the people who work there.
2: It is yes it is very taxing. What's the waiting room like? The waiting room at the moment is um, controlled. Um, that will change towards the day. Um, it it often you know it depends on the capacity within the department. We would like to have all patients in the department because we can obviously keep a much better eye on those. Right now we're really that's fine. We have increased our staffing area for waiting room patients to go through these. Um, rows of patients and take their um, observations to see whether anyone in there is kind of deteriorating Um, because at peak times patient can be sitting in a waiting room area for quite some time for several hours for several hours it will it will depend it will also depend on the acuity of patients we get in the department so if we are bombarded with um, patients coming in by ambulance who need immediate attention that will obviously cause a delay on those ones with a lower priority, medical priority to be seen.
1: What does bombarded mean?
2: Bombarded means if we have, you know, we sometimes have 20, 25, 30 patients per hour over several hours, um, sometimes up, even up to 40 patients per hour, and that will put a huge strain on our team here
1: that would they all be ambulance patients or would they be ambulance and walk-in
2: that's all combined all together 40 yeah
1: have you ever had to look after patients in the back of an ambulance
2: we do sometimes go into ambulances yes to when you find yourself in the situation to identify the sickest ones Uh, if you have limited spaces within the department you do go in an ambulance and uh, assess with your own eyes to decide which one of those should come into the department yes
1: that must be challenging
2: it is something you have to do you know um, which um, we, we do whatever we can to facilitate the best care but it is intense and because you know you have to be more or less everywhere and that's very challenging
1: oh that must be challenging for the patient
2: extremely challenging yes for the staff too Exactly, Um, because you know there are patients out there who, that's why I was saying earlier on, we do sometimes see the need to actually check ourselves on an ambulance, how patients are doing. You know, we have a very good relationship and very good um, feedback from our paramedics, um, but sometimes it is needed to check to see who, who we should bring into the department, first of all
1: and of course it's a gray area because they're still under the they're under the auspices under the responsibility of the paramedic but they've arrived here but they're not quite here do I, do I kind of have the situation right
2: it 's a gray area, absolutely. I would say that the most risk we see is actually not those patients with paramedics because they actually have a paramedic observing, and the paramedics will highlight to us if this patient is deteriorating. The highest risk for us is in the waiting room, and that 's why what I said earlier on, we have increased our workforce there with healthcare assistance to go around there and do repeated ops and to see how are these patients in our Waiting room. How are they doing?
1: Trying to to discover the, the patient with indigestion who who, who is in, who's having a heart attack or a, uh, a young woman with abdominal pain who has a ruptured ectopic pregnancy. For and, example, yeah, yeah.
2: yes, we yes. have the same same
1: of yes. Yeah. We'll be right back. The climate is changing. So are we. You're listening to White Coat Blackheart. This week, I'm at the Royal Berkshire Hospital in Reading, England, to find out what we in Canada can learn from the challenges facing the UK's publicly funded healthcare system, the NHS. Dr. Andrea Hinterholzer says the ER in Reading sees as many as 550 patients per day. A stressful kind of situation for ER nurses. In Canada, they've been burning out and quitting their jobs. In the UK... Nurses are doing something now that they've never done before.
2: From Bristol
0: to Belfast,
1: streaming it to
0: a beat in London and freezing in Wrexham. The message from tens of thousands of striking nurses is the same across the nation. Today's strike is as vast as it is historic. The first time in the Royal College of Nursing's A 106-year history, its members
1: have voted for industrial action. Heather Wilson is a frontline ER nurse at a hospital in central London. Okay, so I I don't have your level yet, so what did you have for lunch?
3: Um, I had mazzocca for lunch that was very battered, having cycled into work.
1: (laughs) For you. Uh, I'm getting my 10,000 steps today for what that's worth. Okay, I spoke with Uh, Heather at her office in London at the Health Foundation an independent charity whose aim is to promote health equity. In addition to her nursing job, Heather is a policy officer.
3: I mean, we have got chronic workforce shortages in the UK. There is such a shortage of nursing. I think on top of that, it's those things about working conditions. It's, it's a stressful job. It's unsociable hours. It's difficult. It doesn't necessarily get the professional recognition it needs. And I think most importantly was that we're seeing a, a sicker population. You know, public health policy right across the wider determinants of health, whether it's housing, employment, education, it's not seeing the investment it requires. And things like smoking cessation, alcohol services, in the UK, they have all had chronic cuts to the the funding that they're allocated and real lack of investment. And as a result, the kind of combination of factors means that we are a sicker population, lower life expectancy, much poorer outcomes and and the gap between rich and poor is widening every day and we're really seeing that play out now in the emergency department and across the hospital
1: In Canada we have seen something that was considered a never event and I gather it's still a never event here and that is small emergency departments closing because they're always one nurse away, one sick call away from from having to close. That's not happening here?
3: Uh, We were seeing that rural hospitals there were saying don't come to A&E unless you absolutely have to and also uh, blue light emergencies being diverted to hospitals that were far further away from patients homes because they didn't want to wait in an ambulance for 12 hours we talk about 12 hour waits we talk about uh, waits on trolleys but they're real people and it and it's really frightening you know there was times when i was thinking i really hope my granny doesn't get sick because i don't want her to come to an a and e at the moment because heaven knows what it will be like and that's awful to say that as a nurse
1: Heather, who took part in the picket, says the work action was less about pay for nurses and much more about working conditions that are unsafe for patients. At its most stressful, on on the most stressful shifts that you've worked, what does that look like?
3: Chaotic. And you get this kind of, I was discussing it with my colleagues, you kind of feel like you're managing. And then as the day goes on, you know, we do 12-hour shifts in in this country. So it's a long day. It's physically exhausting. So you just end up feeling like you're just running around the whole time. And, And as the day goes on and as you become increasingly tired and increasingly dehydrated, it's a rising panic. So actually that rising panic is not just, oh, I've got one very sick patient it's i've got five very sick patients and how do i how do i prioritize those people and as a nurse you end up feeling really like a failure and you know you you take camaraderie from your colleagues and you and you get to the end of the day and you think wow we've really made it and, you know we kind of laugh when we're getting changed at the end like oh we made it through that was crazy i'll see you tomorrow for another 12 hour shift it's totally relentless you have some days and at the end of some of your shifts where morale for your colleagues feels so low and people feel so fed up and it's totally bonkers. You kind of just accept that as norm because we've become so used to it, but it's actually really unacceptable.
1: Do any stories come to mind of, of a, a, a shift where you just didn't know how a patient was going to do? or or?
3: Yeah, so I had a, a patient recently who came in uh, having a query cardiac arrest, and the patient was really well actually, bizarrely. I mean, their troponin level was horrendous. Like, I'm talking a <laughs> thousand.
1: That's well beyond it heart attack crazy. range. Yeah.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a big scary panic, and yet my patient was insistent that it was just gas. Um, classic. Uh, it was quite funny actually. But but I had this patient in one room who was there with their family, and yet I had a patient in the in the room next door who had um, really chronic mental ill health, required really one to one nursing, was having a major episode, which in an A&E department, we are not the right environment to be looking after somebody with that. And so between these two patients, I was really completely absorbed in in using my time between the two of them and yet I've got three others and and as a result I ended up running late on antibiotics one of my other patients whose temperature then spiked you know luckily I've got an amazing team we rallied together we managed to pull through and kind of coordinate and 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 work collaboratively but it shouldn't get to that stage where actually as a result of me not having time my patient's health is deteriorating whilst they're in the A&E department and again five years ago that would have been a complete crisis we would have been reporting it and and sort of raising all the flags but that is just now the norm and the day-to-day it's about really nurses using that voice you know you are the most trusted profession by the public you are very front and center in your local community in your hospital and and actually there's no shame in saying this isn't working this isn't right and we need to do something about it and i think nurses are really well placed to do that and making sure that all of that is centered around patient safety and, and quality of care is really really important
1: and nurses in the uk aren't the only ones who've gone on strike so have paramedics. And on March 13th, tens of thousands of resident doctors across the UK will stage a 72-hour job action over low pay, poor morale, and unsafe staffing levels. Back at the Royal Berkshire Hospital in Reading, Dr. David Oliver describes the crisis at the NHS in ways that are similar to Canada. Too many sick patients and not enough hospital beds, causing ERs to be hopelessly crowded with patients. The UK has the lowest number of long-term care beds of all OECD nations, including Canada. Both Canada and the UK have inadequate home care in large part because of a lack of personal support workers. One unique challenge in the UK is dealing with Brexit.
0: It's harmed our ability to recruit and retain clinical staff from EU countries. It's harmed investment in Europe-wide public health and research and it's harmed our uh, supply chains of uh, medicines and ability to regulate medical products quickly. So it's had a significant impact.
1: Change of subject. Where I come from, a recent study found that 6.5 million Canadians out of a population of 36, 37 million don't have a primary care provider, don't have a GP or a nurse practitioner. How acute is the shortage here?
0: Well, we, we know that um, there's been no increase in the number of GPs, uh, for about a decade, and during that time, uh, their workload has gone up 15 to 20 percent. And the other thing is this big geographical variation. They're not evenly distributed. They're not. Everybody has the right to be registered with a GP, uh, and so that there's not a lot of people who aren't registered. The issue is that access is problematic for people because the GPs are so snowed under. General practice is the most struggling part of the whole sector in terms of workload versus workforce.
1: David Oliver says the NHS was adequately funded during the last Labour government, which was defeated in 2010. The Conservative government, led by David Cameron, began cutting back on healthcare spending. As I mentioned earlier, the UK has always had a parallel private healthcare system. I asked David about that. Was there an expectation that private healthcare would pick up the slack?
0: Well, most people in the UK don't really use private healthcare. And Private healthcare in the UK doesn't really do any urgent or emergency care. It tends to do low-risk procedures, investigations, outpatient work. What has happened is that more people now are paying out of their own pocket because the delays, the wait times are so long for elective care following COVID that they're just using their savings. And also the government has contracted with private health care providers to help deal with some of that elective backlog. Like
1: what? What, what kinds of things are they paying for? Well, you
0: know, routine orthopedic surgery, eye surgery, endoscopies. But a major report uh, last week from the Centre for Health in the Public Interest showed that Even when the government were giving money to private hospitals to help clear NHS backlog, a lot of it was still being used for private patients actually. And of course the other thing is the private health sector relies on the NHS because where where do the staff come from? The staff at the NHS has trained or still employs
1: so i 'm smiling now because in more than one province, Ontario, for example, which is the largest province in Canada, they have now floated the idea of of having private uh, standalone clinics to uh, soak up some of the excess procedures and kind of take the pressure off publicly funded hospitals and you've raised exactly the objection that has been raised in Ontario, except we haven't done it yet. And that is that uh, where are the people, where are the staff uh, going to come from to, to, to staff those, those places? You
0: end up with a spectre of the same surgeons doing operations in the private sector that they could be doing in the NHS if the capacity was there.
1: Earlier this year, NHS England published a proposal to address the crisis. 800 new ambulances, 5,000 new hospital beds, more money for NHS telehealth phone advice, faster hospital discharges, and more PSWs in the community. I guess the most important thing that, they, that they're that they not talking about is how to recruit more people.
0: That's it. I mean, all of those ideas, they're all the right things to be doing, but it will all founder on whether we invest properly in the workforce, train more people, recruit more people from overseas, retain more people. And if we don't do that, none of this extra capacity will happen really.
1: And even if you do, it's going to take years for them to enter the system and begin to relieve some of the pressures. That, that's absolutely right.
0: And the other two things we've touched on, social care, the government keep ducking proper social care solutions. In, say, uh, Japan or in Germany, they had a big national conversation about social care and came up with some sustainable solutions. What? Uh, well, you know, insurance that covers the whole population with a public-private partnership. But at the moment, our social care system, you, ha- you have to be pretty dependent to be eligible, you often have to pay, and even if you are eligible and even if you have got the money, they still struggle to source any carers. And the social care ha- has a knock-on effect to health care. But of course, in health care, the urgent, pressing, high-profile crisis like overcrowding in the emergency department or long ambulance response times will always win over let's invest properly in primary care and prevention it's not been backed by meaningful investment people are very fond of quoting chomsky aren't they saying that if you want to make the the case to privatize a public service you defund it you worsen its performance you start bad mouthing it and then you say privatization is the only solution and the system was working pretty well in 2010 it, what, what's happened since then is a result of poor decisions by policymakers
1: so it could be reversed?
0: It could if there was a will to do it, yeah. I think it's going to come down to if if we put the investment in, is it going to come out of general taxation? And I think the, those on the right would rather push us towards like a sane insurance-based co-mable model, a bit like Australia. Talking about privatising the NHS will be as politically unpopular as going in the States trying to restrict gun use. You know, the famous quote was that the NHS is the closest thing the English to have to a religion.
1: You've observed what's going on in Canada to some extent. So what are the lessons for Canada? Well, don't allow your service to be systematically run
0: run into the ground through a lack of investment uh, and lack of workforce. Major bed reductions. Do invest properly in primary and community health care because we need to be a wellness service, not a sickness service. And do invest more in whether you want to call it social care or personal support because that has a knock-on impact to the rest of the system. And also don't have immigration rules that are unfavorable to recruitment and retention. We need to recruit ethically international graduates and we need to retain more of our staff. So don't, yeah, don't make the same mistakes we've made.
1: Dr. David Oliver, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you, Brian. From out of the crisis at the NHS has come some remarkable innovations. In Oxford, Dr. Dan Lasserson and his healthcare team deliver state-of-the-art healthcare, not in hospital, but at home.
0: We would probably need a 20-bedded ward, active 24-7, to deliver what we're the volume and complexity of what we're delivering in the home environment. Anything that you can put into a vein in the hospital, we can put into a vein in the home. Our diagnostics are less, we don't use so many lab bloods, we use a lot of point of care, we don't use x-rays, very rarely use CTs. Based a lot of our assessments and judgments on point of care ultrasound. There's a whole kind of, you know, Broadway cast of people that are making hospital up and
1: running that we don't need to use. That's next time on White Coat Black Art. If you have comments, email us at whitecoatcbc.ca. At White Coat Black Art was produced this week by Amina Zoffer and me with help from Jeff Goods and Stephanie Dubois. Our digital producer is Adam Killick and our senior producer is Colleen Ross. That's medicine from my side of the gurney. I'm Brian Goldman. See you next week.